we can all relate to disappointment. We've all dealt with the unfairness of life, and we've all had to or will have to deal with suffering. We know friends and loved ones who suffer, and, and a question that I ask, I ask you today, is it possible to suffer well? Is it possible to suffer well? How, how does someone suffer well? Is this making light of suffering? Absolutely not. At some point along the road of life, suffering will come. How do we engage it? Is it possible to, to glorify God with our suffering? Peter tells us in verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though something strange were happening to you. Peter Peter's saying, don't be surprised, don't think it's strange, it's not bad luck. One writer named Ellicott said it like this, talking about Peter's original audience. He said these Hebrew Christians, they were saved out of Judaism and, and they became followers of, of Christ and and. What happens, they felt at first it was not what was to be expected. That those who attached themselves to the Messiah should have a life of sorrow and, and persecution in the world. And, and we're really no different in 2021, aren't we? One lady told me nearly 20 years ago that when she decided to come to Christ, her life full of challenge really got difficult. And she said, I, I thought there'd be no more problems. I thought there'd be no more problems. She, she, either, she either misunderstood or in all actuality she was misinformed. What did Jesus tell us in, in John chapter 10? He, he says this, that the enemy has come to steal and kill and destroy. And that doesn't always mean physically. The, the, the enemy can rob your emotions, steal your relationships, kill your hope. But what did Jesus say in response to all of that? He, Jesus said, I, I come to bring life and come to bring it abundantly. And, and not just in eternity, but right now, even in hardship, we don't suffer alone. And, and we've already been told by, by Peter, back in chapter 3, that suffering, which we don't bring upon ourselves, in fact, this brings the Lord glory. Did you see how Peter is describing that trial, the ordeal? It's fiery. It's going to be severe. But it's not a surprise. Jesus told us back in, in, in Matthew chapter 10, in our kingdom encounters, he told the disciples, and, he, and he's telling us, you will be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. In verse 13, Peter says, To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that at the revelation of His glory, you may also rejoice and be overjoyed. To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Rejoice in suffering? Paul tells us in, in the book of Philippians chapter 3, he says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them mere rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him. Not having a, a righteousness of my own, that I'll be found in Him. 
not having a righteousness of my own, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. And then Paul says this, and the fellowship of His sufferings. Being conformed to His death, if somehow I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. One of the writers in the old pulpit commentary said this, Suffering meekly born draws the Christian nearer to Christ, lifts the Christian, as on a cross, nearer to the crucified Lord. But this it does only when he looks to Jesus in his suffering. When the eye of faith is fixed upon the cross of Christ, then faith unites the sufferings of the disciple with the sufferings of his Lord. He is made a partaker of Christ's sufferings, and so far as suffering has that blessed result, in such measure he must rejoice in his sufferings. That, that phrase, the faith, then faith unites the sufferings of the disciple with the sufferings of the Lord. Peter is telling us to keep on rejoicing. And the way that Peter has written this, the way he writes, keep on rejoicing, it is what is called an imperative. It's a command. We are being commanded. And it's that distinct in the language. It's a command to keep on rejoicing. And Peter says, so that you may also rejoice and be overjoyed at the revelation of His glory. Keep on rejoicing. Now this revelation of the Lord's glory, when we think of revelation, we think of that thing which is revealed. It's, it's awe. It, it, we're overcome with awe. And there's a beautiful Old Testament verse which captures this emotion of rejoicing at the revelation of glory. And this verse is found in all places, the book of Job. The book of Job. And you want to talk about a, a man who knew about suffering which was undeserved. Everything was against Job. He, he had lost nearly everything. But despite all this hardship, Job declares the following, and it's in Job chapter 19, verse 25 and following. Job says, Yet as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, He will take His stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I will see God, whom I, on my part, shall behold for myself and whom my eyes will see, and not another. My heart faints within me. Mm. But, but it's hard to keep on rejoicing in our pain. But you and I have to remember, in suffering well, we have been given the very best model to follow. Jesus. Peter says in verse 14, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the Spirit of glory rests upon you, because the Spirit of God rests upon you. And this, this Bible teacher, Ellicott, he says it like this, Lest it should be doubted who was meant by the splendid phrase, Peter adds this, And of God... All glory is God's, and therefore the Spirit, which is the Spirit of glory, can be none other than the Spirit of God. 
but as God Himself is greater than His own glory. The words, they form a climax, and it means more to call the Lord the Spirit of God than to call Him the Spirit of glory. Verse 15, Peter says this aside, Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. Make sure that none of you suffers in these ways. And that's, that's pretty self-explanatory. We, we have been told since the very beginning of this letter that we represent Christ. We represent Christ, and, and when we act in opposition to Christ's likeness, we tend to bring things upon ourselves. When we act in opposition to the things of God, it's a poor witness. We bring things upon ourselves. And then Peter says, but if anyone suffers, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed. He is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. And the way that Peter has written this, when Peter says you are not to be ashamed, that is a command. Why why does Peter say that? We all know what it's like to feel shame. We all know what it's like to feel guilt. We all know what it's like when things happen in our lives over which we have no control, over which we have no say-so, when we are the recipients of a bad deal, we catch a bad break. It could be loss of a job, could be whatever. Peter is saying, if you're suffering as a Christian, I command you to not be ashamed about that. We should not feel shame. We're told distinctly not to. And this is what else Peter says. We are commanded to glorify God. We're commanded to not be ashamed, and we are commanded to glorify God. And there's no question, we're able to rest in that. When Peter is reminding us, telling us, don't be ashamed in it, glorify God in it, we can rest in that. Peter Peter also says, we are commanded in this name. Whose name? Well, look there back at verse 14. If you're insulted for the name of Christ. So so this name is the name of Christ. And Peter then uses the name of the Lord as a a descriptive. He uses the word Christian. And the word Christian only appears three times in the New Testament. Twice in the book of Acts and, and, and here. And we first find out that in Acts that the disciples, they were first called Christians in, in Antioch. But, but this name didn't come along until later. One of the writers in the old pulpit commentary said this, and I, and I, I think it's not just interesting, but it leads us to a point. That the name Christian was probably invented by heathens, mockers. It was used as a term of, of derision. And it wasn't commonly used among believers until after New Testament times. And this is why. They began to discern its admirable suitableness. It reminded these believers that at the center of of their belief system, their religion, was not a system of doctrines, but a person. And that person is the Messiah, the anointed of God. And we sometimes, because... At the core of who we are, we're movers and shakers, and we're, we're about getting it done. We're about doing, about doing. And so often we can fall back into that rhythm of I'm trying to do all the right things. But I think it's interesting here. Peter calls us back to 
not about the doing, but about who is at the center of what we believe. It's a person. It's Jesus. And we are called by his name. It's not about what we do or the good works we're trying to do. It's about the good work that Jesus has done for us on the cross. Verse 17, Peter says, It's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who who do not obey the gospel of God? It's time for judgment to begin. And, And this word for time... The word for time doesn't mean 8 a.m. or 9.30 or 11 or lunchtime or supper. But the word for time that Peter is using is a special set-apart appointment, a season. And Peter's telling us that this time of judgment, this special appointed time for judgment, this season, it's coming to a head with the household of God. Some of your translations may read the word house or temple of God. Is Peter talking about a a building like this, a structure? Paul wrote to Timothy in in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and he said this. Paul writes, In case I'm delayed, I'm writing to you. I'm writing so that you will know how one should act in the household, in the family of God, which is the church of the living God, the, the pillar and the support of the truth. It's the people. And and regarding the appropriateness of one's actions or behavior, Paul, on another occasion, he asks the Corinthian church, he asks this famous question, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? It's you. And we've just heard Peter himself remind us in chapter 2 who we are in Christ. Peter told us a few weeks ago, you are living stones being built up as a spiritual house for holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus. We're the household. It's not a building. We are the household of God. And and Peter says that it's time for judgment to begin with the household. What did we see about the beginning of judgment way back in Matthew chapter 24? Back in the end of 2020, we spent three weeks in Matthew 24 looking at the coming of the Son of Man. What's what's it going to look like when everything ends and here He comes? What's it going to look like? And and what we saw in Matthew 24 verse 7 reads the following about the beginning of judgment. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. But all all these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. And then they will hand you over to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. But, but, what does Paul tell us in in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 32? Paul tells us this about our judgment. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. When we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Our judgment looks different. We're not judged unto unto condemnation. Peter sees God's judgment for us. Edmund Clowney says this, in the context of hope. And those are two words you don't usually see together, judgment and hope. Peter is alluding to a prophecy which is found 
in the very last book of the Old Testament. If you were going to, if you go to the very end of the Old Testament, there's a book called Malachi, and there's a prophecy in chapter three, and and Malachi writes this. He says, and these are the words of the Lord. He says, the Lord says, "Behold, I'm sending my messenger, and he will clear away before me, and the Lord whom you are seeking." will suddenly come into his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, the Lord's coming. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can endure? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like a launderer's soap, and he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. He's talking about his church. It's a fire not of judgment so much as a fire of purification. In our suffering, the Lord is burning away things in our lives that are displeasing to him as we struggle, as we deal with stuff. The Lord in His grace is removing things that pull our eyes off Him. Verse 18, Peter says this, If it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and sinner? And this question of Peter's is a, is a direct restatement of, of an old proverb in Proverbs chapter 11. If it's with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what's going to become of the godless man and the sinner? And Wayne Grudem says this about the fire of God's holiness. It's so intense that even the righteous feel pain in its discipline. But the impious, a, a godless person, a person without true reverence for God, the impious and the sinner will by implication find this not to be... Not to be Discipline only, it's going to be fire of eternal destruction. And then Peter tells us in the last verse this morning, he says, Therefore those also who suffer according to the will of God huh, are to entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God, notice that, they are to entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Entrusting the soul. Another word of this entrusting the soul would be committing. Committing. And when Peter's audience hears this, what's registering with them? Edmund Clowney tells us this. This word for commit means to make a deposit. The Hellenistic, the Greek world of that day lacked our modern banking system. Someone undertaking a journey might deposit his funds with a neighbor while he's gone. And so naturally, this one would be, would be concerned about his neighbor's integrity. So to Peter's audience, when you see words like entrust or commit, that's a big deal. That's not just words in a prayer. That's skin in the game. When you commit, you are taking something of value and placing it with someone else. This picture of entrusting, we, we've seen it before. In Jesus' crucifixion, in, in Luke chapter 23, Jesus 
at the end of it, he cries out with a loud voice. And, and he says, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. And then Jesus dies. In, in suffering well, Jesus is the model we are to follow in trusting the Father. So how might this play out for us in the long run? If we look at this widescreen, big picture, how does this look for us? Wayne Grudem, he speaks to this and he says this, Christians do not suffer accidentally or because of the irresistible forces of blind fate. Rather, they suffer according to God's will. Let me explain. Grudem says, while this may at first seem harsh, for this implies that at times it's God's will that we suffer, upon reflection, no better comfort in suffering can be found in this. It's God's good and perfect will. Stay with me. For therein lies the knowledge that there is a limit to the suffering both in its intensity and its duration. There's a limit set to suffering. It's set and maintained by the God who is our creator, our savior, our sustainer, our father. As the hymn writer says, our maker, our defender, our redeemer, our friend. And Grudem says this, Therein also lies the knowledge that this suffering is only for our good. It is purifying us, drawing us closer to our Lord, and making us more like Him in our lives. And there's one more thing about this verse. It's only here in the New Testament where God is called Creator. He is the designer. Nothing happens without his knowledge or will. And this picture of the Creator, how is he described? Faithful. The Lord in whom we trust. Do we trust him? Do we really, do we really trust him? I ask you that question. I asked that question a couple weeks ago. Do you trust him? With the hard possibility that no one wants... If we are called to follow Jesus, we are called to the possibility and the probability of suffering. I also know that we have been called for this purpose because Christ suffered for you and He suffered for me and He's left us an example so that you and I would follow in His steps. The steps of one who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And and that night when he was on trial before he went to the cross, he was abusively insulted. He did not insult in return. And, And while suffering, Jesus did not threaten, but he kept entrusting himself to the Father who judges righteously. Jesus, the Son of God, entrusted God the righteous judge, his father. The son trusted the father. And the son trusted the father because the son loved the father. And therein lies the question for us, for you and for me. Do we love the Lord? Do we love the Lord? Of course we do. If you love him, do you trust him? 
See, that's the whole key to suffering well. We should strive to suffer well because we represent Christ. Our suffering is a witness to our brothers and sisters in Christ as well as the watching world. How we engage the reality of suffering is our testimony to our faith in the Lord. How we honor the Lord in our suffering can draw others closer to the things of God. In our suffering, we're commanded to keep on rejoicing. We're we're commanded not to be ashamed. And we're commanded to glorify God in the name of Jesus. And we can only do that. We can only suffer well if we believe verse 19. If we trust that ultimately the Creator is faithful. That He is faithful to you and He's faithful to me. Do we trust Him?